welcome to the Peds NP. I'm your host, Becky Carson. Join us today as we unpack differential diagnoses and talk about some common and serious problems of the eye in pediatric patients. For my Catholic University of America FNP students who just finished their week on common pediatric problems of the eyes, we're going to pick apart how everything went this week. And if you're joining us from elsewhere out there in podcast land, welcome. I'm sure you can pick right up on our topics and get some great pearls of pediatric evidence-based practice. Let's get started. We had a case presentation of a five-year-old with a pink eye who had a known contact at school that had bacterial conjunctivitis, but you still needed to go through the motions of asking the history and performing a physical exam before just jumping to the same diagnosis. One time I had a patient who presented in the same way. She was five with a unilateral red eye. It was just after Christmas and her mom told me that pink eye was going around her school. And despite my better thought that the erythema and clear drainage from her eye seemed to be disproportionate to what I would expect of conjunctivitis, I was about to call this bacterial conjunctivitis and call it a day. But then chatty Becky overcame me and verbose, have you noticed yet? And I noticed that she had fine glitter all over her face, which seemed really odd to me in a five-year-old. Are you wearing bronzer? I asked. Her mom laughed and said, yes, she and her sister had gotten makeup for Christmas and she likes to wear it. So I perked up. Did she get mascara? No, but her sister did. She knows that she's not allowed to wear it. I said, well, that's cute that you made this rule and thought that your girls were going to obey it. But you see your five-year-old's eyes? See how they look the same way I look when I fall asleep on the couch and wake up three hours later and still have to go to bed and take off my makeup? Yeah, she's wearing mascara. Did your sister help you put this on? You won't get in trouble, but we need to know what happened. And then I get a timid nod. So I did a fluorescein exam on her and it revealed a corneal abrasion. The treatment was the same with erythromycin ointment, but the diagnosis and anticipatory guidance was much different. You should begin the process of developing your differential diagnosis the moment you walk in the room, or if you're like me, before you walk in the room, when you're reading the chief complaint, the nursing notes, and reviewing the vital signs. Differential diagnoses are critical to your thinking and your organization of thought as you engage in the assessment of patients. A differential diagnosis is a list of your most likely causes of the problem. And there are possible causes of the problem that you'll be mentally ruling in and ruling out as you move through your history and physical exam. At first, your list could be really long, but it's going to get shorter every time you learn more from the history and physical exam or lab results. You'll be juggling the relative importance of each possible diagnosis in your mind as you move through the steps of your assessment. There are methodical ways that you can tackle a differential diagnosis using mnemonics like SPIT, which stands for serious, pertinent, interesting, and timely. Or with another mnemonic like vitamins, A, B, C, D, E, K. You can look up that mnemonic in a 2016 article by Zabidi Hussein. Or you could even do it systematically like head to toe. While typically your list narrows down the more you learn, on occasion, there could be something you discover in your history or physical exam that will add something new to this imaginary list. So as our case progressed, you were given more and more information that was indicative that this supposed pink guy had a relatively short list of possible diagnoses. You want to list them in order with your most likely diagnosis being number one. 
And there are some advantages to doing it like this. For teaching purposes, it tells me what you're thinking about and more importantly, not forgetting to consider. In the healthcare arena, using such a list can convey to those who are reading your note later the level of thought that you put into it as you were arriving at your working diagnosis. This can document the level of complexity of your clinical thought and the level of medical decision-making that you engaged in as you were diagnosing the patient, which is important for our insurance payers to see, as well as in the court of law. What I noticed about your differential diagnosis in this case was that you weren't always able to add or eliminate age-specific diagnoses. What's the first thing we talk about in a summary statement? The age. It's a critical piece of knowledge to acquire about any diagnosis or health concern, and sometimes in pediatrics, it is the most important. As I've mentioned before, pediatrics has about seven age groups that are uniquely different, and that age group matters significantly along with the presenting chief complaint. So you always want to think about how age is affecting your assessment of a pediatric patient. By the end, it was clearly bacterial conjunctivitis, and many of you identified that bacterial conjunctivitis is more common in young children up until the late preschool to school age, and then viruses become more common in older school age children and adolescents. The key here is that conjunctivitis in infants and little kids is more likely to be bacterial, whereas in school age, it's more likely to be viral. And how would your diagnosis and management change if when you were assessing that patient, you discovered an acute otitis media on your physical exam? If a child has conjunctivitis otitis syndrome, we are probably going to be most concerned about the etiology being caused by a non-typable H influenza B. So a systemic antibiotic is going to be required to treat that. And because you know that this pathogen is concerning for possible beta-lactamase resistance, you should prescribe Augmentin instead of amoxicillin, and you no longer need the topical antibiotic. Remember that we're using the high-dose regimen that's dosed based on the amoxicillin component at 80 to 100 mg per kg per day, divided BID. I usually do my math as 45 mg per kg, then round to the nearest 0.5 mLs and prescribe that dose BID for 10 days. In our second case of the week, you were given this priming information that it was a busy day in clinic. And I often talk about waiting room stress as a form of cognitive bias that can make us make the wrong decision because we are so preoccupied with getting everyone seen. But that doesn't mean that you should let that waiting room stress affect how you manage a child if you know that they're sick, which you knew when you heard that the patient was a three-year-old girl with an acute onset of fever and eye redness, swelling, and pain. As most of you realize by now, while the differential contains some more mundane things like conjunctivitis, you are expected to include orbital and preceptal cellulitis in your differential. Because of the relative importance of these diagnoses, you are expected to discuss thoroughly their management in primary care, as well as how to make a decision about who's going to need hospitalization. So the kids who need further care are those that are worrisome for orbital cellulitis and presumed preceptal cellulitis who didn't improve with outpatient treatment and careful monitoring. It was also important to review their immunization history. You know I love asking about immunizations and then deciding for myself whether they're up to date. A sidebar for my students. We do this exercise on every patient where you're listing out each vaccine the patient has had. I know that that feels redundant and cumbersome. 
but it's meant for you to begin to memorize the schedule and then intimately know and recognize variations that present that might warrant an action or change in your medical decision-making. I don't really mind how you want to write it, hep B times two, him times two, rotavirus times two, whatever, or you can make a chart. Whatever you choose, I want you to memorize the schedule and get practice figuring out whether a patient is actually up to date because we know so often that parents don't know what this means. And then consider how vaccines play a role in our medical decision-making. So I digress. We were talking about how using your knowledge of vaccine status might impact the organisms that are most likely to be involved. All of you should get in the habit of thinking about specific and most likely organisms involved in infections as we all strive to be better and more judicious stewards of our antibiotic use. It was important to see the child that day, even though your office was busy, and not delay her evaluation. But I caution those of you who recommended that the parent treat the child at home with Tylenol and Motrin prior to being seen. Doing this could actually mask symptoms of pain with extraocular movement or fever that might be critical in your diagnosis of deciding whether it's orbital or periorbital cellulitis. Yes, it might make the child feel better, but consider the risk of masking those symptoms. If you were concerned and plan to work up the child prior to outpatient treatment with things like a CBC, blood culture, and CT scan, it's obvious that you identified the severity of this case that was presenting to your office. But in most cases, sending the child to the ED will expedite the care and management and avoid delays. So my overall suggestion is not to order that CT and blood work prior to sending the child to the ED for further evaluation. If you have a pediatric ophthalmologist right down the hall that is available to see your child in the next 20 minutes and she appears non-toxic, great. By all means, refer her immediately. But always ask yourself whether the outpatient setting is the right place to work up a patient. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Later in the week, we got to read an article by Lesky and Castaneda about the quality of life in children who wear glasses. And I think... Lots of us had personal responses that were not dissimilar from my own. As a kid, I received too much unnecessary talking in class on every single report card in middle school because I was in the back whispering to my classmates, asking them what was written on the board. And then the teacher would yell at me for continuing to talk. So obviously I didn't stop and she would move me to the front of the class where miraculously I would behave because I could finally read the board. I knew I couldn't see, but I wasn't about to say anything about it. And then at 15, I failed my vision test for driver's ed and went home crying because I had to get glasses. And when I put on my glasses and went outside for the first time, I was in utter shock at how beautiful it was. And I had no idea I was supposed to be able to see the individual leaves on trees. <laughs> what had I been missing all this time? So fast forward a couple of decades and I refuse to get LASIK surgery because I think I look too cute in glasses and I need them as a sneeze guard against my patients. While it was an interesting read because of the human interest connection we all made, it was not necessarily a groundbreaking study. And the conclusion of the article was that there was a six to 15 point decrease on a hundred point scale in children's quality of life who wear glasses compared to their non-glasses wearing counterparts, according to both the child and their parents' perception of the child's quality of life. 
we need to pick apart this study for its merits and weaknesses. While they used a validated tool, the tool was previously validated on a different patient population. So should we trust its accuracy to measure the intended outcome in a new population? And then you always hear me talk about assessing how impactful the results are. Are they impressive enough that we should change our practice because of them? How many grains of salt should we take with them? Remember what Mark Twain told us, there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. In some cases, the actual statistical results may not be as compelling as the narrative that the authors want us to take home when we read the conclusions at the bottom of the abstract. What stood out to me the most in this article was the graphical depiction of the results in the box plot. Graphs are the best. They are the memes of the literature. You can say so much with a picture and a little caption. The results section described an average decrease of this 6 to 15 points on the quality of life scale, which seems like it should be significant. But the box plot shows us that the range was overall pretty similar, where the groups had the same maximum, meaning that some children with glasses have an excellent quality of life, just like their two eyes counterparts. But the minimum was often lower, meaning that there's one kid who's having a particularly rough time with glasses. Was that minimum skewing the results? What would happen to the averages if we took out those single outliers? Well, when you look at the interquartile ranges, they're still somewhat similar, though admittedly slightly lower in the glasses children. But was it enough to do anything about? This was a great example where the graphical depiction of the results can shed some light on the true results of the study. It can show us areas of bias in the narrative or even some skewed results. Next, you needed to decide if the evidence warranted taking action in your already too busy well child check visit. And most of you decided that it would be helpful if a child maybe fails their vision test to address the issue optimistically or even consider contacts. But you also noted that that was a future area that needed to be studied. For me, the take home of this article was that we too often scroll over the results section and fail to evaluate the methods and actually look at the numbers and statistical analysis, their implications and their significance. The point of the author writing the entire article is so that we can appraise the entire research endeavor from start to finish, rather than blindly slow clapping the narrative of what the authors conclude. January is long gone and February is picking up steam. So next week, we'll keep the conversation going with common problems in the ears. And just remember that when you're seeing your sixth patient of the day with purulent eye boogers, that you're doing this for the kids. Take care. <laughs>